Thank you for your cooperation. Amen. I am in a very challenging, and I don't use that in a negative context. I'm in a very challenging stage in my life at ministry, and the Lord is sending me places I never imagined to do things I never desired, never sought to do. Um, Pastor said when he was younger, he desired to be a conference speaker. I, that's fine. I wanted to be chief naval operations, so (laughs) not exactly the same thing. Or I would have settled for being chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, but neither one of those happened, so praise God. Amen. Uh, If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me or turn your iPad or phone or whatever you have with you on, Matthew chapter 9, and I'm going to go to, I'm going to begin with for time's sake, to Matthew, verse 35, Matthew nine thirty-five, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he would will send forth laborers into his harvest, uh, amplified version, beginning with verse 35. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news, the gospel of the kingdom, and curing all kinds of disease and every weakness and infirmity. When he saw the throngs, he was moved with pity and sympathy for them. Why? Because they were bewildered, harassed, and distressed, and dejected, and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is indeed plentiful, but the laborers are few. So pray to the Lord of the harvest to force out and thrust laborers into his harvest. Praise God. Uh, I'm going to do my, the other one that you love to laugh at, uh, the easy-to-read version. Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages. He taught in their synagogues and told people the good news about God's kingdom. He healed all kinds of diseases and sicknesses. Jesus saw the many people and felt sorry for them because they were worried and helpless 
like sheep without a shepherd to lead them. Jesus said to his followers, followers, there is such a big harvest of people to bring in, but there are only a few laborers to help harvest them. God owns the harvest. Ask him to send more workers to help gather his harvest. And I think if I, you'll give me a moment to switch apps. I didn't say asps. That's a poisonous snake. Apps. Uh, I want to uh, read something else here for you. Another translation. Jesus was going about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and making a public proclamation of the good news concerning the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness. And having seen the crowds, he was moved with compassion concerning them because they were exhausted by their troubles and their long, aimless wanderings and had thrown themselves to the ground in an utterly prostrate condition as sheep not having a shepherd. Then he says to his disciples, The harvest indeed is great, but the workers few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to thrust out workers into his harvest. I don't expect to say anything tonight I've never said before in the last 46 years. But I just feel like I, I need to talk about this a little while tonight. And the last shall be first, so I'm going to start with the last verse that I read instead of the first verse I read. It is, uh, it is a shocking thing to realize that the verse, the word in the Greek translated uh, thrust out into the harvest is actually the same word translated uh, the same word ekbalo which is the same word that's translated cast out in reference to demons. The word, uh, well, there it's here. There you go. It's E-K-B-A-L-L-O. It's the strengthened word of balo, B-A-L-L-O, from which we get the English word ball. And ekbalo is not on, not just a throw, but it's it tells you, it intensifies the word, and it tells you of a direction, a destination, out. Ek is out, away from, out of. And cast is the use of authority to propel someone or something to do something that it doesn't want to do voluntarily. So when you cast devils out, you are propelling 
demons out of where they don't want to leave. And the Lord chose that exact same Greek word to request that we would pray that he would take his people, his laborers, that are bogged down with life and eject them out into the harvest where they're not going voluntarily. You say, well, that's pretty harsh. Really? Is it really harsh? No, really. Let's look at this from the other perspective. Let's find out if it's harsh for the Lord to so put pressure on you that you're like the proverbial watermelon seed that if you put enough pressure, you can shoot that seed out. You squeeze on it and it goes pew. Let, let's find if, let, let, let's see which is the most unfair. Him putting pressure on you to squeeze you out into the harvest in spite of your circumstances and your life and your involvement? Or is it more unfair to leave you mired down, bogged down by your cares and your life and let people who cannot save themselves go to hell because it just doesn't fit with your life and your lifestyle right now. Not trying to be unkind. Not saying you don't have stuff going on that's very demanding. Not saying that. But honestly, can you honestly tell Jesus, my life and its challenges are so great that those souls that it is your will for me to reach so that they don't spend eternity in hell, that I am justified not being involved with the lost because my life is so challenging and I just don't have time to be used of you to spare people from hell forever. I mean, really, really, do I, do you want to stand before God in the judgment and try to justify to God that my life is so overwhelming and so challenging and so difficult that it's worth letting people to go to hell over and that he should say, I understand. Because I, I know how challenging your life is because you husbands have to get up early in the morning and go out and feed the animals and uh, and uh, milk the cow and collect the eggs. And you ladies have to get up and pour out some grain into your mill and and grind up the mill and the, 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 the grain into flour. And then you, I, I know this is tough, isn't it? You got to do this every day. And then you got to, pour in oil or water into that flour and mix it up and then 
put it in the oven and bake some bread. And while that's finally breaking, you're going to make sure the stove is stoked with fire. Oh, yeah, you got to go outside and get some firewood and bring it in and put it in there. And then, and then you got to, you got to get the lard out and, and, and get the eggs going and the bacon going. Cause when your husband's done all that, you're, he's going to come in hungry because he, he needs a good meal before he goes out and begins to plow so you can eat next year. Life is tough, ain't it? I, I, I know that for some of you, you're really sure I'm being very unkind right now. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I, I'm here pleading the cause of those that are going to spend eternity in hell forever because we were too overwhelmed with life to bother to reach them. We just are too busy. There's too much pressure. There's too much struggle. There's too much difficulty. I mean, you know. Maybe maybe after tonight you'll decide you need to be in one of these classes. Because it looks like for much of the year about the only time I'm going to get to See Antioch is on some Thursday nights. Um, so if you can survive this tonight, maybe, maybe you can go back to the comfort of your lifestyle and the comfort of your justification of your lifestyle. <laughs> I'm not trying to be unkind here. Honestly, I'm not. But I'm, I'm 69 years old and living out of a suitcase most of the time to try to help the church be able to more effectively reach a lost and dying world rather than sitting at home with my feet up enjoying the fruits of my labors. So forgive me if uh forgive me if I, I'm I'm having a little hard time with that. Um, I don't deny that within the context of our world, I doubt seriously there's anybody sitting here that doesn't have stuff causing you pressure. I, I doubt seriously. I, I I'm pretty sure that most of you have stuff that's Maybe painful and difficult and all of that. And, and, and most of us have good intentions. You know, when life settles down a little bit, when life gets a little easier, when I'm not quite so overwhelmed, I, you know, I'm going to get involved. I'm going to get involved. And then there's some of you been around here a long time and, and, and you've, you, you've done so much and it's now your time to rest. And let somebody else do their part. Really? 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 And the problem is you are justifying yourself where you are. 
and the condition you're in and what you're not doing. Well, you know, I, I, I helped carry this thing for so many years and, and, and it really now it's really, I deserve a break. You must have stock in McDonald's. You, and that their theme, you deserve a break today. McDonald's. Or maybe, maybe you really have stock in Burger King, have it your way. I, when I first saw this Greek word in this verse, I had a real struggle with this. I'm thinking to myself, Lord, after all you've done for us and all that you're willing to do through us, is it really necessary for us to pray that you would eject, forcibly eject with authority through your word, your spirit, or circumstances if need be, your people out into your harvest just to get us involved in harvest. I don't know, maybe maybe this these verses are really written for our day and time and the Lord in his wisdom and 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 his uh, his uh, omnipresence he saw the condition the church is going to be in and what what the world was going to be like and he saw that the harvest truly was going to be awesomely great but that the thing missing was going to be laborers in the field do you understand I mean, what he says here is really, 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 really difficult for the flesh to take in. Because, you know, you, we talk, okay, what do, what do we have to do to be more effective? And how, what kind of plans do we have to come up with to be more effective? And, and, and how, and, and, and how do we, how do we do this and that and the other? And all these things may be important. Yes, they are. They're all important. But the bottom line is, he said, the harvest truly is plenteous. It is exceedingly abundant. And there's one reason it's not being reaped. He didn't offer any other reason. Well, you don't have enough vision. You don't have, you don't have enough plans. There's not enough organization. There's not enough training. And all of those, I believe in all that. He didn't mention any of that. He never one time mentioned any of that. And I believe in having apostolic structure. And I believe in the importance of training. And I, and, and, and I believe in the importance of oversight and, 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 and all, I believe in all of that. Vision. I believe in vision. I believe in having a plan from God. I believe in all of that. But he never one time mentioned any of that. He said, the reason the harvest is not being reaped is I can't get the laborers into the harvest. Can't do it. He didn't say, I don't have enough laborers. He said, the laborers, the implication is the laborers that are actually in the field reaping the harvest are few. Now, currently, if my 
understanding is correct. We have 16 different pulpits on Sunday morning. Sunday, at least. A couple of them are in the afternoon, maybe. He didn't say, pray therefore to send out preachers into pulpits. Because those of you that are in this room that are leaders of ministries, if you're content to just preach to those people and that's what you consider your job, and you're, I don't care how good a job you're doing, if you think that's your job, then you're not reaping a harvest. Because preaching in the barn is not working in the field. I'll say that one more time. Preaching in the barn is not working in the field. Jesus said it very specifically. The field is the world. Well, hey, hey, hey. We have done our best to keep the world out of here. That's the church. We don't want any world in here. Well, of course that's true. But... We're reaching primarily the people that come through our doors, whichever set of doors it is, wherever they are. That means we're preaching in the barn. We're preaching in the barn. We're not in the field. The field's the world. We're preaching in the barn. I was... uh, Somewhere outside of the state of Maryland this past weekend, if you know where it is, so be it. But I'm not saying it over this stream in this recording. And I was quite impressed. Boy, this church was just absolutely involved with the lost. And they were reaching the lost and they got ministries going here and there and and whatever and and then he said to me, you, you know we're pattering, pat, patterning all of this after Antioch. And I thought to myself, well, you may be patterning it after what Antioch used to be. But most of Antioch is really content to be in the barn. And you got your people out in the field. I didn't say that. And this pastor's a lot younger than me. And uh, he's, uh, he's preaching every Sunday morning. Then he's preaching in the main church. Then he goes to one of the daughter works on Sunday afternoon that he is still the pastor of. He hasn't turned it over to anybody yet. Then he comes back and preaches Sunday night. Then he goes to that daughter work on Tuesday night. Then he goes to the main church on Wednesday night. And then... The rest of the time, he only teaches like two, three, four Bible studies a week. And is it really a wonder why that church is growing? And he's got seven different daughter works, and he's still the pastor of three of them. He's turned four others over to other men after he got them up good and solid. But he expects those guys to keep doing what he was doing. And what he was doing was... 
he was in the field. I know, I know, I know. It, it, I know it feels like I'm just beating you up really bad. I'm just being so unkind and, 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 and unappreciative. No, no, no. You see, that's the problem. What you're hearing is you're hearing this about you. And I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the lost that has nobody to reach them because the laborers are comfortably hiding in the barn. <laughs> a couple of years ago, I preached that one of the messages that I'd preached as a, an evangelist through most of the year of 1970 before I came here, the seven horrors of hell. A couple of, couple of years ago, I preached that here and, and again. And, and, and <laughs> I don't think you understand how real that is to me every day. I wrote some things on Facebook the other day, tweeted some stuff about the church that, you know, what the church is, what the church isn't. And, oh, wow. You could tell it really hit home because there were some folks that really were upset that I was challenging their comfortable concept of church. For instance, have church. Church is not a verb. It's noun. And in that construction, have church, it just means doesn't mean you possess church. It means you participate in church, which in that context, the word church would be defined as what a church does, which in this context would be singing and preaching and, and, and worship and, 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 and whatever else is on the calendar. There's no place in the Bible where we're told to have church or to go to church. Oh, yeah, it says about assembling yourselves together. <laughs> yeah, I know. And it does say that. And I believe in that with all my heart. But it doesn't say go to church. It says the church should assemble together. It doesn't say go to church. It says the church should assemble together. Because the church is supposed to be the church. And the church is supposed to do what the church is supposed to do. What the church is called to do. And, boy, oh, Lord, have mercy. Some of the comments were just absolutely so defensive. Well, of course it's defensive because the stuff that was said wasn't intended to be offensive. Even though you tell people truth, then they take offense at it. The purpose of it was to get people to think. Because we become... Our minds become drunk. Our minds become drunk. Our minds become insensitive due to the influence of things that are not of God. And so we lose our ability to see clearly and be sensitive and to stay focused. Praise God. Praise God. 
you know, I, I haven't played any golf this year, but uh, the Lord's going to let me play some golf. And when I'm out there, I will know that I'm supposed to be out there, and I'll have peace doing it. Because I don't want to do anything I can't have peace doing. I'll have peace doing it. I'll have peace. Uh, sitting around the house with your family. That's the will of God. The pastor just preached it. We are called to be husbands and wives and mothers and fathers. That's, that's part of our responsibility. And there are times it is absolutely the will of God for us to give, to invest time in doing that. Now, you can spend time if you want to, but I'm, I, I choose to invest time. There's a big difference between spending time and investing time. And spending time is when you're doing things that there's no return on. That money's gone. Investing time means you're, 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 you're putting your time into something, but you expect that there's going to be some profit for God, for you, for both you and God, or your family, or whoever. There's going to be some profit. When you're investing time, you're doing something that you expect a return on. When you're spending time, you know that time is gone. I'll say that again. When you're spending time, that time is gone. Whatever you got out of the moment is all you're getting because you spent the time. When you're investing time, no matter what you put into what your investing time is, you have some expectation of a return on that. I was in uh, Texas doing a, an or bishop ordination a couple of weeks ago. And it was at that part of the ordination service that I walked right up and stood right in front of the man that was about to be ordained. And there were people all over the platform and the building was full of people. And I just preached right to him, right there in front of God and everybody. About 20, 25 minutes worth just standing there looking him in the eye and preaching to him. And I said to him, Yes, this is an office God is going to entrust you with, and it will have more power, more authority than you can imagine. But to have that and be saved, you're going to have to die. In fact, the greatest focus of God in your life, your personal life, from here to the rest of your life, to the end of the rest of your life, God's daily focus in your life is to help you to die over and over and over again. I didn't say that in private. I said that to him right in front of everybody in that building. That from this night forward, God's number one focus in your life is going to be for you to die and die some more and die some more and die some more and die some more. Why? 
Because when God trusts you with something like this, this dimension of authority and power and and this measure of impacting people out there, for him to use you to do all of that and you still end up saved, you're going to have to die repeatedly over and over and over and over and over again. And if you don't want to die, you can have all the vision you want, but you're only going to ever see a small measure of it because God cannot give you more fulfillment of your vision, your dreams, your burden, your passion than you're willing to die to receive. He can't. Oh, he can. But do you really want him to? If after you've preached to others, you yourself are going to be a castaway? That's what, what Paul said. He talked about, if after I've preached to others, he said, I keep on top of my body. And, 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 and it, he was really saying die another way. If you, if you read those verses, he, he said, I keep, I keep after my body or I keep on top of my body. And some have literally translate, I beat my body with fists. So that after I have preached to others, I might be saved so that I don't end up being a castaway. And a castaway, that word literally in the original uh, use of it in secular Greek, it, was, it spoke of a runner in the Olympic Games in a race who had a chance to win, but he didn't. Fulfill the qualifications. And before he could cross the finish line and be given the victor's crown, he was disqualified from the race. Disqualified. Hey, ha, I'm 69 years old. I've been doing this actively in the ministry for 46 years. I've had the Holy Ghost 57 years. And to come all this far, and end up lost right at the end? Really? Really? I'm going to run all this race and be disqualified? Tell you how old I am. I, uh, I played football in high school and the football coach was the track coach. I'd been playing in the, in the school I was in in ninth and 10th grade. I'd played football in the fall and baseball in the spring. But this guy was the track coach, and he said, if you're going to play on my football team, you're going to participate in track in the spring so that I can know you're getting in shape and staying in shape. Forget baseball. You're not doing it. And so there weren't any football players that I, I remember that played baseball. Everybody ran track. So I high jumped and I ran the 440. That's called the quarter mile. It's the 400 meters today, which is not exactly the same distance, but it's pretty close. And the 440, 440 yards is too long to be a sprint. It's too short to be a distance run. So when the gun sounds and you come off the starting line, 
You run as hard as you can till you die or cross the line. One or the other. Because if you pace yourself, you're not going to win the race. And so you just run and you run hard. And way, way back there in ancient times, we didn't have rubberized track. We had what was called cinder track. Small pieces, a little tiny rock on that track. And if you ran out of gas and fell down, you were going to have little marks in your palms and in your face the rest of your life. You weren't ever going to get that out. So you want to win the race, but don't fall, don't fall, don't fall, don't fall. And so if you're stumbling or whatever, it, you could be in the lead. You could be in lead by 50 yards. You could be just about to cross the finish line. But if you get out of your lane or step outside the track, maybe you're on the inside and you accidentally step over into the infield just apart, they disqualify you. No matter how far out in front you are, you're disqualified. No matter how well you ran all that race, no matter how well you've got a lead, no matter how well you've done, it's possible to disqualify yourself so that no matter if you cross the line ahead of everybody else, it doesn't count. And some of you have been living for God all your life. That's a long time, even if you're only 25. Some of you have been around church all your life, 30 years old, all your life. All of your memory, you've been around the church. Been trying to live for God, do the things of God. That's a long time, no matter how old you are. So are we going to chuck that simply because life's got a little difficult? There has to be a balance in a church between people that were raised in the church and people that are what we call first generation. They came straight out of the world into the church. There has to be a balance. And both of those two help each other. The people that have been around it all their lives, they, they bring a stability. But the people that are brand new in it, they bring a freshness. And they have the ability to remind people what we're doing here. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. You know, when, when you get saved at five or seven or nine or ten or twelve, you, 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 uh, they preach to you, come repent of your sins. <laughs> so you come repent of your sins because you, but I, you know, what sins? I stole some bubble gum. I mean, really? I, what much sense? I, uh, Mom told me to vacuum the living room, and I didn't. And she asked me if I did, and I told her I I did, but I didn't. Is that is that wrong? Yeah, yeah. I got to come repent for that. But is that like dealing drugs? Is that like being a bed hopper where you've had relations with so many different men or women that you can't even remember their faces or their names? No. No, it's not the same thing. But the church needs both of those. 
the church needs people that have known the goodness of God all their lives. And the church needs people that have come to the goodness of God at some later point in life where they had to make a decision to come out of this and into this. And the church needs both of those. The church needs both of those. And there needs to be influence in the church from both of those. Which is the greater miracle? It's foolish to compare them. Is it a greater miracle that God could keep somebody raised in the church and lead them into knowledge and relationship with Him without them ever going out into the depths of sin? Is, is that a greater miracle? Or is it a greater miracle for God to bring people out of the depths of sin? They're so far down you can't even see the top of their head. You can't even hear their cries anymore. They're so deep into sin. Yet He pulls them up out of the miry clay and brings it. Which, which one's the greater miracle? It's foolish to try to compare it. They're both great miracles. They're great miracles. And they're both necessary for a balanced church. And so for those that have been raised in this all their lives, they have to, they have to have people in the church they have a relationship with that, that, that came out of that, that they can vicariously understand how great God was and His ability to bring a sinner out of the depth of sin. But for those that came out of the depth of sin and feel like they were so soiled and so broken and so messed up, to be around people that God was able to keep them in the same world but keep them pure uh, to whatever degree uh, all those years that gives them hope. God can, I've got my new beginning now, and if He kept them all those years, He can keep me now. And there has to be a balance with that. But I will say this. Those of you that have come out of the, day, the, the pits of sin, you have a little bit of an advantage over those of us that were born in this. Because surely you're not going to keep this to yourself after God so graciously brought you out of all that. Surely, surely you're not going to keep this to yourself. And in your passion for those that are in darkness and bound and don't know truth and you giving yourself to them and you seeing those who are like you were and that causes you to have compassion you can help us that were raised in this to see the need to have compassion Help us understand it. Because you see, when you're raised in this, there's a deep pit that's easy to fall into. It's the pit of being religious. It's the pit of self-righteousness. Because it's so, uh, the pastor said it tonight, I think, if I remember correctly, it's so easy to get in to make the Word of God into rules. Whether the preacher's presenting it like that or not, it doesn't make any difference. 
you, you know, the book says, thou shalt, thou shalt not. And rather than seeing that this is, this is supposed to be the indicator of the condition of your life and that, that if you're doing the shall nots and you're not doing the shalls, that it's not a question of fixing that in your life. It's a question of coming to the Lord and enabling Him to do what you're not doing. And in Him enabling you not to do what you are doing. And He does that. But it's so easy to fall into the, you got, got a schedule. It's church. I got to go to church. It's church night. And the, well, it's choir practice or it's, 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 it's leadership training. So I got to go do that. Whether I want to do that or not, whether that's really my burden or passion, but I'm religious. And so I, I go do that because that's what others expect of me. That's what I expect of me. And I, I'm trying to keep the payments up on my eternal life insurance policy. And I do all that to keep my payments up. Because no telling when I'll have to cash in that policy and reap the benefits of it. See? So it's so easy to fall into that. Life is difficult, but if I can just get to church, I will have, I'll have accomplished what's expected of me tonight. And that's, that's such a dangerous place. And the thing that always bothers me is when the people come out of sin and God takes them out of all that darkness and they weren't raised in this. And then they get in this and then they begin to watch those raised in it act like that. And they begin to think, I guess that's the way I'm supposed to act. No, there's supposed to be a meeting in the middle where both parties affect the other positively. And when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. Do you know, do you know what's so disturbing to me? What's so disturbing to me is when we can move about our day. And we can turn off the fact that it's mo- it's very likely that the people we're passing on the highway, passing in the store, passing in the mall, passing in the grocery store aisles, don't know Jesus. And if they die in the condition they're in, they're going to spend eternity like that forever. That's That's so disturbing to me. I, I don't know about you, but... Have you never been in traffic and look around and go, Lord, where, where are all these people going? What, what are they doing? What, what's their life about? What, what are they living for? Do they have any hope? And of course, the devil tells us a lie. That sure helps us in our justification. Well, they don't want what we've got. Ninety-nine percent of them out there don't know what we've got, so they have no idea if they want it or not. 
and he that winneth souls is wise. So therefore, if I have sought God, been involved with the Holy Ghost, and I have wisdom, then I'm in a position where I can help them find what they're looking for, even when they don't have a clue what it is, till they meet me, till they meet you. I'm so sorry to tell you that the first door of visitation I ever walked, knocked on in my entire life was the fall of my senior year at the Naval Academy. I was 21 years old, almost 22. I'd been in the United Pentecostal Church all my life. I had never been in a church that did any kind of outreach or visitation. Not one, north, south, east, west, or in the middle. Tennessee, California, Northwest Florida, Northeast Florida, Virginia, D.C., Rhode Island. Not one of them. Not one of them did visitation. And I come here by myself. And there was a man uh, who came here in the summer of 67. God sent him here to start a church. I'd been here three years by myself. And... uh, he rented a building over in Annapolis. And uh, I'd been going to the Naval Academy Chapel, but now I have a church to go to. So the first time I ever went on visitation in my life was with this man. We went out knocking doors to invite people to church on Sunday. And uh, it was one of the most exhilarating experiences of my entire life. Because the lies I'd been told weren't true they weren't true the lies weren't true people were hungry and uh, that was the end of 1967 October, September, October, November The beginning of 67 is when the Lord gave me the first soul that I ever was involved with seeing saved. February of 1967. Dwayne Ammerman had never been in a Pentecostal church service. He'd never heard anybody speak in tongues. He'd never seen any kind of Pentecostal worship. We borrowed a Baptist church over off Bay Ridge Avenue in Eastport. They gave us 30 minutes to go in there and baptize the guy. And a minister from Delaware came over. I'd never met him before, but I called and asked for help. And a minister from Delaware came over. And uh, we baptized him in a Baptist church's baptistry. And he received the Holy Ghost in the water even though he had never in his life been seen anything like it. There was nothing for him to copy. He'd never seen anything. There was nothing for him to imitate. He'd never experienced that. But in that water, he received the Holy Ghost. And my life was forever changed. 67 was a major year in, in the furtherance of my ministry because for the first time, 
God gave me fruit, even if I wasn't seeking fruit. I was seeking truth, and he gave me fruit. And before the end of the year was over, I was involved with a man. The first visitation ever done by an apostolic preacher in this city, I was with him every day he went out. Not knowing that in less than two and a half years, it would be me as the preacher knocking the doors of this city. Don't tell me that door knocking doesn't work. Because for the first three years of the history of this church, every single person that was saved was a direct result of door knocking. It was only after that third year we began to have people that knew people that started bringing people that we started seeing people get saved, that we didn't directly knock their door. And I'm telling you right now, brothers, sisters, there's several ministry leaders sitting in this room. Don't fuss with God if your ministry's not growing, if your whole focus is just having good church and preaching the best message you can. Is that important? Yeah, but not near as important as you're making it. Not near as important as you're making it. We have had church in this city in more holes in the wall than you can imagine. And I found that it had nothing to do with whether or not people came and got saved. This is by far, even though it's a temporary auditorium built on the second floor of a building that was never intended to be an auditorium. It's all we've got left. And it's beautiful. I'm not, I'm, I'm thankful for it. But we, we've prayed three people have come to church and prayed through in situations that you can't hardly imagine. Because we didn't wait for them to come to us. We went to them. I was trying to clean some files up on my computer the other day. And I came across something I couldn't even remember having done. And I hadn't had a chance to look at it closely till the other night. But I got about 30 files, and it's called journal. And I kept a journal of what happened before the building collapsed, a journal of the day the building collapsed, and for the next 12 days, 13 days, 14 days, I had a journal of every day what happened, what I experienced, what I was feeling. And then the last four or five of those, it was a journal for the week, and I, I wrote stuff in each one of those. And, and, ah, that was painful. It was so painful. My Lord, it was painful. Because that every one of those files talking about the day and 
what we faced that day and what the struggle was that day and how I was feeling that day, what we were facing that day. Oh, my. That was so very difficult. But, you know, the thing about it was so amazing to me. You know what was so amazing to me? The constant focus in those in that journal was what are we going how are we going to get people to church to be saved constant that the only way to deal with loss is to focus on the future i wrote that a couple of times in there that was the encouragement that God gave me and I hate myself. The only way to endure this is not suffer, not focus on what I'm going through and what's, what, what we've lost, but to focus on where we're going. That's the only way I made it. And I was going to kind of keep it secret, but I'm not. I, my wife said, why don't you put all those in one document? And make that available for our 45th church anniversary. I think I will. I think I'm going to put that someplace where you can read it. Because the Lord's brought us from a mighty long way. Oh, yes, he has. Father. By your grace, I've done my best to say what you wanted said with the attitude and spirit that you wanted it said. And I commit what has been said here this night by you through me into your hands and your spirit regardless of anybody's response and attitude to it. Lord, this is your word. I believe you've spoken it. Therefore, I commit it into your hands. That whatever you have to do to deal with us in the night or any other time of the day to get us refocused on what we're doing here, I loose the word and the spirit of God to accomplish that. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Lord, you have requested this prayer to be prayed. So by the authority of the office that you've operated in, operating in and through me, and by the power of the word of God and the, the authority of the Spirit of the Lord, in the name of Jesus, I command that your laborers would be ejected out into your harvest fields, regardless of the cost to us personally. Whatever it takes, I only ask, Lord, that when you're doing the ejection, that you do not let us be ignorant of what's going on, that you speak to us and say, you forced me to this because I can't let these people be lost. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have prayed your prayer, Father, 
the one you requested it. I have prayed it like you wanted it prayed. And I trust you with it for the sake of the lost of this world. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.